Welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host with the most, the most opinions about pop culture, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, and the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the world of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We're going to do something a little different this week on the show. Usually we cover a show or a topic and then we let it go for a while. But in this case, we're going to revisit some stuff that aired earlier in the season. And we're going to reevaluate and see if our initial opinions were correct. I'm going to talk to Greg Ford about Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power. And he's going to listen to me rant enthusiastically about the Game of Thrones show House of the Dragon. Boy, that's good. And I'm also going to talk to frequent contributor Scott Gold about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, and about Andor, the Star Wars show that's currently airing on Disney+. Plus. She-Hulk is, of course, a Marvel Cinematic Universe show. And I'm also going to visit another Marvel Cinematic Universe property, Werewolf by Night, which is a special currently airing on Disney+. Plus. And our resident horror expert, Pablo Gallaga, will be here to talk to me about that. We'll be right back after these important tunes. said we were going to revisit the Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, at the beginning of the season because there just wasn't enough evidence to uh, to gauge whether or not this was going to be good. But now we are on the verge of the finale, and by the time you're all listening to this, you'll have seen the finale. And I think we can gauge exactly what the Rings of Power is. And uh, Greg Ford, our resident Tolkienologist is here, and he and I, I think, are of a united opinion that the Rings of Power is an all-time legendary turkey. Hello, Greg. Turkey is putting it mildly. Hi, Neil. How are you doing? I'm I'm good, because I'm not currently watching the, the Rings of Power. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm disappointed. I don't know if my expectations were that high, but... I mean, my God, I mean, this show is is really, really terrible in, in every imaginable way. I know there are some people who disagree with me, including uh, my wife, who I watch the show with. She likes it better than I do. But, you know, I, I don't think I'm in a minority here. Well, it's poorly written. The acting is turgid. The, I mean, once in a while, there's an enjoyable fight scene, but you can't run a whole show on, you know, some kung fu moves from an elf maiden warrior. You know, that's just not enough. Well, I think you can, but <laughs> you can run a show on that. But this is not that show. This is not a show about, you know, uh, about kung fu moves. You know, this is this is an, an, it's supposed to be an epic prequel to The Lord of the Rings, which, you know, is pretty much universally considered as the template for all fantasy adventures uh, ever right it's like the, the 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 gold standard and you know and it's a show with and it's a, a book series and a film series with an incredible depth of narrative and and excellent acting and you know great moral weight and rings of power just doesn't have any of it i mean i, I can't even one it doesn't make any sense the show doesn't make any sense you don't get a sense of how long scenes are taking or why they're why characters are doing what they're doing they, they don't really have any, they don't have clear relationships. A lot of times you don't even, I can't even remember their names. Well, 
you said it, the Lord of the Rings, you know, the book itself has depth and even the appendices on which this silly show is based, they have depth, but the writers, the showrunners have jettisoned all that for something almost entirely of their own making. There's nothing really recognizable from it for those of us who know Tolkien. It's well, just, you know, I, I don't care. I don't care. I wouldn't care that much if it were fun. You know, if it were funny, if it were, if it were like campy in a good, enjoyable way, if, if it was kind of over the top. You know, the only um, actor who seems to be aware of the ridiculousness of the source material is the guy who plays the Dwarf Prince. You know, he's got a little twinkle in his eye, and at least his scenes, you know, have a little punch to them, right? Right. But then on the other hand, for, you know, somebody like me who's something of a token purist, I think they're doing the dwarves a grave misservice by making them out to be these buffoons. I mean, how can they how can they create this vast underground, beautiful, vast underground realm of Khazad-dûm, Moria, and just be a bunch of bumbling oafs? It doesn't make any sense. Right. And on the other hand, the elves who have made this beautiful world, they're also quite stupid, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, like, you know, they seem to make just an endless number of mistakes and they're just kind of sitting around twiddling their thumbs. Um, you know, and then you have just, well, you know, the, the show takes what should be an iconic moment in pop culture history, you know, the creation of Mount Doom and turns it into a ridiculous cartoon, you know, the, and, and not, you know, and, and I'm talking like a seventies cartoon, you know, not like a good modern cartoon. It's just, it's, in, it's insane. And, and again, like this climactic battle that the show leads up to for hours and hours and hours it happens pretty quickly and yeah it's vaguely exciting but then it turns out to be kind of purposeless well yeah it doesn't even live up to what is it the ralph bakshi 1978 lord of the rings cartoon it's, right. know, th that at least had some style yeah though this everything is everything is very flat and again it kind of emotionless because you have no attachment any of the characters i mean the one character you know boy do you know her is galadriel they say her name every five minutes uh every five lines and so you're very aware of who your hero or your heroine is and that's fine um but i think that the show uh you know operates at the expense of the other characters i guess i guess i guess elrond and and, and lauren or doran or whatever the dwarf prince's name get you know get some identifiers as well but it's just it's just so flat and it's so silly, you know, and it just, I feel like it just runs around and around in circles and nothing yeah. really happens. Yeah, I don't even remember the name of the elf who's in love with the human healer woman. I mean, Gary, you know, his name is Gary. Okay, that works. <laughs> yeah. Why you not, know? right? Or, 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 or Dave, you know? Yeah, Dave, I think Dave is probably it. You know, and he gets a good amount of screen time and he, you know, he's pretty good with the bow and arrow, but I don't care about his supposedly forbidden love with the, with the human woman. And neither does anyone else, including the human woman. No one seems to care much about anything. Yeah. And then there's the completely nonsensical 
plot line, if you can even call it that, with the mysterious stranger who falls from the sky and ends up with the Harfoots, the proto-hobbits, um, who maybe he's Gandalf, maybe he's Saruman, maybe he's Radagast the Brown, uh, maybe he's none of those. But you know, why does he have these peculiar, fae, murderous creatures following him around? I mean... Well, and it, and it, and it doesn't explain any. You know, it doesn't explain anything. And I don't, you know, yes, I understand there needs to be mystery and suspense, but, you know, that needs to be built by action following action. And it doesn't, it doesn't add up. And, you know, I I find the whole, um, there's a huge, you probably aren't following this, but there's a big publicity campaign afoot to sort of humanize the showrunners. They had a sort of a lick spittle feature Mm -hmm. in the Hollywood Mm -hmm. Reporter and the LA Times is constantly telling us how successful Rings of Power is and how much everyone loves it. And it's clear that the Amazon publicity machine is feeding servile media um, stories about the Rings of Power to try to persuade us that the show is better and more popular than it is. And I, I just find that kind of offensive. It's just like, stop trying to, for- I mean, obviously. We can't avoid it. Like, it's never going away. It's so expensive. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I haven't talked to a single person who likes it. And that's a, that's a sign, I think. Except your wife. Well, she doesn't hate it. My wife, right. though, you could, put, you, could, you could put any wizard or elf <laughs> or, or, you know, on screen and she would watch. You know, I mean, she, she, her critical faculties are good. But when it comes to fantasy, it's like, you know... All she'll say is that it's better than the Wheel of Time. And it's true. It is better than the Wheel of Time. I will give Rings of Power that. But the Wheel of Time was one of the worst things ever made for TV. I would say the Rings of Power is one of the worst things ever made for TV, honestly. You know, it's going to – it will go down in pop culture infamy. I, I wanted to pivot, um, and I know you haven't been watching this show, but in comparison with the other major fantasy shows currently streaming – House of the Dragon, the uh, Game of Thrones prequel, it really pales in comparison because House of the Dragon is incredibly good, like extremely tense, extremely well acted. You know, for the most part, there was one episode where characters were kind of running around in the dark and you couldn't exactly figure out what was going on for half of it. That was that was a problem, but for the most part, everything it it, it, it plays like Shakespeare. It has the gravitas of it. The writing is, it's, it's a little self-serious, but it's, it's really good. Uh, the characters and their motivations are very clear. And at least once an episode, if not once every 15 minutes, there's a kind of like, oh shit moment where you're like, I, I can't believe that that character just did that or that that just happened. Um, and, uh, you know, it just, I'm constantly riveted to this ridiculous family saga that, um, feels like something taken out of Shakespeare, but with dragons in it. So you got to watch this thing, man. So, so there are actually some, you actually feel as though there's something at stake rather than just some things happening one after another. Well, there's a lot at stake. The, you know, the fate yeah. of the kingdom rides on the decisions that, you know, poor sad King Viserys makes. And let me tell you, this guy who plays Viserys Targaryen, who, uh, passes away toward the end of the season. Spoiler alert! Is, is, the uh, Irish actor named Paddy Considine is mm. or dying. I don't, is, is so good 
I mean, it's one of the best performances I've ever seen in any TV show. And, uh, you know, he just, he really, he took what could have been a, a real pathetic dish rag of a character and infused him with real nobility and real tragedy and real depth. And, you know, and all this, the supporting characters are, are all almost just as good. So, you know, there is a template for doing this kind of thing right, for taking intellectual property that is a little obscure to most people and like and elevating it to the level of art. And I would argue that House of the Dragon does that. Um, and, you know, and, and you compare that with the schlock that the Rings of Power is churning out and which, you know, is more expensive fancier looking schlock than the stuff we watched as kids in the 70s and 80s. Admittedly, you know, it's sort of a higher end uh, schlock, but it's still, I think, will age and date just as badly. Well, it's kind of funny. I mean, have you read the Game of Thrones novels? Yeah, I mean, I've, 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 I've read some of them, but, you know, those books are, I think Game of Thrones actually lends itself really well towards to TV, right? Because you know, there's a lot of sex, there's a lot of decapitation, um, you know, and, and there's just there. And, and I think that, you know, George R. R. Martin's work is best when you trim some of the fat away and get to the leanness of the narrative. And that was sort of the problem with the last season or two of Game of Thrones is it was kind of wandering all over the place and, and you, they kind of lost control. And it kind of I mean, I still actually kind of liked it, but it, it did kind of go in the direction of kind of cheesy fantasy whereas house of the dragon is just so tight and pointed and, and just laser focused on where it's going well it's it's i was thinking it's just kind of funny because the lord of the rings show and house of the dragon they're kind of doing the same sort of thing in that they're taking a source material and then doing their own thing with it and one of them is succeeding and the other just is not. Well, and that's why I think it's an apt point of comparison because obviously, you know, these aren't, you know, I'm not comparing, um, you know, House of the Dragon to The Witcher, for instance, which is a fantasy series, uh, which is you know, a fairly successful one at that, but it's, it's not, you know, it does, it's not trying to be something other than what it is, which is, you know, shirtless Henry Cavill fighting monsters. You know, you, you, you get what you, you get what you pay for there. And that's fine. Uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, I think, you know, wants to be kind of like the, uh, the recent Star Wars trilogy, some sort of great work of art and just fails on every account because of just bad production decisions and bad writing. Whereas House of the Dragon is the exact opposite. It is every decision they made with the exception of maybe a couple of stiff and wooden sub uh, supporting characters has been impeccable. Yeah. You got to watch it, Greg. Got to watch got to watch House of the Dragon. I'm sorry to tell you. Sounds impressive. I mean, I've avoided I've avoided You've avoided it. I've avoided all the Game of Thrones show stuff so far, but maybe I got to check this one out. Yeah, I mean, it's I'm telling you. It's it's really good. If you've ever, if you like King Lear, you'll, but I thought that it needed dragons. <laughs> that was the one thing, that was the one element that was missing. And this is the show for you. So, all right, Greg, well, thanks for listening to me rant. Thanks for ranting about Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, which we will never be rid of, unfortunately.
continuing the theme of revisiting shows that we talked about a little earlier, we're going to talk about She-Hulk, Attorney at Law, and Andor, which are both Disney Plus shows. She-Hulk is a Marvel Cinematic Universe TV show, and Andor is a Disney show. And Scott Gold, our resident uh, man boy, along with me, we're the <laughs> we're, we're the we're the, the guys who never grew up, the Peter Pans of Book and Film Globe. We're going to talk about Marvel and um, and Star Wars. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back. Yes. So, all right. So let's talk about uh, She-Hulk, Attorney at, at Law, first, because I feel like this is a show that has engendered a lot of discourse online, you know, because it's a, it's a Marvel superhero show, and yet it's barely a superhero show, right? It's like there's a lot it, – it, it's kind of this meta-commentary on – male-dominated superhero content. That's kind of the best way to put it. Wouldn't you say that's about right? Oh, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's highly postmodern. It's very different from, you know, all of the very self-serious Marvel shows that have been out there. And I think part of it, you know, is like drawing a lot of humor from that and from the fandom that comes in and can be, you know, very, uh, very emotional about their television. So, uh, in that respect, you know, I really like it. It's different. It's fun. I think Tatiana Maslany's great. Um, I, I I don't feel myself so invested in either the MCU or in you know the character of She-Hulk that you know I'm going to be really like viscerally angry about anything that yeah. she oh, does on the show. Absolutely, you know, but it's it's interesting that the villains in the show, if there if there can be such a thing, and it's such a lighthearted show are toxic online superhero fans. And so the writers for the show, who are largely female, um, have sort of you know baked the critique in of their show into the narrative and have sort of detrolled their trolls, which is, you know, clever. It's a little annoying, but also clever. Uh, and it's not like uh, this show doesn't have any superhero elements, you know, my, there are, I had two things that I, I really loved about this season. The first was that character who appeared in one episode of the middle of the season. She was kind of a drunk party girl who hung, hung out with um, Wong, the Sorcerer Supreme. And she had a lot of really funny lines. Um, Madison. 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 <laughs> I thought she was great. Really great show. I would watch her week in and week out. And then the other really uh, great thing that She-Hulk did was bring Daredevil – into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You know, the character of Daredevil, who's a significant Marvel superhero, previously was existing in this sort of like semi-realistic, dark Netflix reality. And then they throw him into the MCU and suddenly he's doing all these elaborate comic book style somersaults and also wearing a gold costume, uh, which is which is kind of fun. And I thought that the episode where uh, he appears and fights alongside the She-Hulk and also has sex with her, for that matter, um, you know, because really, like, that's, you know, th that's the level of um, boyfriend that this character deserves, not just some random dude. Um, I thought it was really, really entertaining and really faithful to the comics and just a lot of fun to watch. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think bringing Charlie Cox back in as Daredevil was a really, really, really smart move for um, the runners of She-Hulk to do. Uh, just because, I mean, he's a he's a fan favorite character. He's a fan favorite actor. And uh, you know, on a personal note, he was one of my, you know, absolute favorites of the Netflix era of of Marvel TV shows. And I loved that show so much, but it was 
dark. It was violent. You know, it was, there was a lot of derm and strong and angst and all those other, you know, German words that you would <laughs> use. It, it was gritty. It was gritty. And when you see Daredevil in this context, you know, this show is very bright and it's very, you know, wacky and it's very ironic. And you see him presented in a different light. That's what they do in comic books sometimes. Sometimes you have a serious, gritty version of a character. And, you know, sometimes you have, you have dark Batman. Sometimes you have Adam West Batman. You know, and then, so they've replaced... It's not like it's a completely different character. I mean, he's still the same actor. Uh, and he still has the same motivations. He still lives in Hell's Kitchen. But it's like this kind of wink-wink, nudge-nudge irony. Uh, and so that, that's kind of fun. And if you... You know, and I know you haven't watched, as we're speaking the finale yet, but it gets even winkier and nudgier when at some point uh, She-Hulk just stops the finale entirely, climbs out of the frame and into the Disney Plus show menu and climbs out of that and goes onto the lot and and confronts the, the show's writers and also uh, the, uh, the MCU's showrunner, Kevin Feige, who is not really himself in this. I won't spoil that much, but it's like a it's as ironic and meta as the comic books used to get in the eighties. And I thought it was, you know, cleverly handled to say the least. Um, you know, my one, I would say my one criticism about the show is, you know, it, it purports to be this sort of, you know, it's a kind of a girl boss comedy, but I feel like, you know, there's a, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like a very specific brand of like successful LA woman feminism that I don't necessarily think translates broadly you know, it's like it's like Jen Walters is a rich and successful attorney who becomes richer and more successful and more beautiful. And I don't know, I don't I don't quite I don't find her as empathetic and sympathetic as maybe I should. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being an incel here, but I, I found it a little a uh, little limited, but it was still fun overall. Yeah, I had a great time with it and I can't wait to watch the finale and you know, literally in in the you know, the postmodernism of of She-Hulk has existed since the comics that you mentioned like she has literally stepped out of frames and into other frames and they've used that as a device in the comics um to transition from scenes but you know, she's definitely broken fourth walls and like that's an established part of the character and I think just fully embracing that for the 21st century was a smart thing for Marvel to do. And I mean, just casting, I think is spectacular bringing in, you know, the guest stars that they did and the whole Wong episode, as you mentioned, was really uh, fun. And, you know, and that's it. That's it's fun. Like the, the opposite of Andor when we last discussed, I said, you know, of all the star Wars shows, this is probably the least fun. Well, she Hulk for me, I think is probably the most fun of the Marvel shows. Cause it's just, it's such bubblegum pop, you know, I dig the postmodernism of it, you know, I dig the meta stuff, but, you know, it's it's nice to go in to a superhero show without having to be like, okay, like, where, you know, who are all my, my peripheral characters, what are all their motivations, and like, have to like, reacquaint yourself with the whole serious nature of the, of the narrative, and just be like, hey, I'm gonna watch single female Hulk lawyer, and uh, have a good time with it, and it's it's nice to have something a little bit more poppy, a little bit more light, to, uh, to, to kind of fill out this universe that doesn't always have to be so serious. Yeah, I mean, again, it's not a disaster. I mean, I was, I was, in, I was ready to watch it every week. You know, sometimes I would watch it, I'm like, this is not for me. Like, the wedding episode, like, I could not relate to the wedding. I mean, I'm a middle-aged married man. I could not relate to the wedding episode. Um, I could, there was, there's some other stuff that went on 
that I, I just it just kind of felt like um, you know like bad LA dating comedy like that just had nothing for me but you know as someone who's liked and you know followed this character over the years I did appreciate that they remained true uh, to her essence uh, she Hulk attorney at law now let's now let's um let's talk about Andor right let's all right that's your area of expertise. Um, I am only, as we're talking, we're six episodes into what I think is an eight episode season. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm appreciating the sort of a star Wars noir vibe that it's giving off. And I, you know, I, I, I also appreciate the fact that like, it's really taking its time. The one thing I did not like, uh, was the flashback structure. I know we talked about that the last time we talked about the show, but I felt like it really leaned overly heavily on the flashbackiness, and it was it was it was not. I felt like it was kind of distracting. But that I think by the time the main heist narrative takes place, that's gone. So the flashbacks in Andor, I I, I really thought worked better than the flashbacks in other series like the Book of Boba Fett, in which we have a character. Uh, you know, there's this very contrived framing device that they used to introduce. Boba Fett's history and, you know, how he got out of the Sarlacc pit and what happened to him on Tatooine with the sand people and all that. Um, it, it felt a little, uh, I don't want to say lazy, but it did feel contrived. Like it didn't really quite work out, even though the flashbacks themselves and what happened in them were, were really fulfilling and fun. Uh, I liked the fact that in Andor, the flashbacks were very abrupt and it took you a second to kind of figure out what was going on. Um, and aided to that, was the fact that when we're on Cassian's home planet, which was all children, by the way, very Mad Max, Beyond Thunderdome kind of situation. We don't quite know exactly what happened uh, to orphan all of the children on his planet, but um, you know they're speaking their native language, and we don't get subtitles. And I think that's almost, a, that might be a first for the Star Wars universe, where we're yeah, just kind of left in the dark. I didn't mind the material. I just, I just hate the flashback as a narrative structure. Why not just have that be the first episode, you know, or the first half of the first episode or the first 10 minutes? Because there was really only about 10 minutes of material. There's no reason to keep coming back to it over and over and over again over the course of, you know, three, almost three hours of entertainment, you know, and I, I, I felt like it was kind of a narrative crutch. That's my only, you know, but that's my criticism of pretty much any flashback in any show that I ever watch. But other than that, I mean, I felt I feel like the show is really tense, really gritty and really well acted. And I didn't mind the fact that like essentially the main plot doesn't even really start till episode four. The first three episodes are kind of a, a like a like a cop chase narrative set on, on Andor's home planet. Right. And then it builds in in episodes four and five, you know, we're building up to what you mentioned as, uh, you know, this big heist. And in episode six, we get the payoff and is one of the single most brilliant episodes of live action um, Star Wars television. It was a really, really, without trying to spoil anything, uh, it's about as close to Star Wars is going to get as, uh, it's about as close as Star Wars is going to get to like Michael Mann's heat, like a, you know, big, elaborate, you know, bank heist, essentially. Uh, and again, no lightsabers, no force, just straight up, you know, rebels robbing a bank, you know, sticking it to the to the Empire. Um, and the way they do it and the way it's coordinated is really great. You know, yeah, Michael Mann's heist scenes, you know, and I, we just, we talked about, uh, I recently read Heat 2, um, the novel, and we talked about that on the show. You know, there's usually like an elaborate setup where 
we have to dr you know drill into a wall at a certain time and everything has to be coordinated really well um and it's all very well researched and i, I could see that building and i appreciated that and also you know let, let let's be clear there's some great acting in the show you know diego luna i think is, is very effective as andor but it also uh, you know ebon moss backrack uh who was has been so good in so many things lately he was in the bear and he was in uh, the dropout the elizabeth Holmes show plays mm -hmm. just one of the heist guys you know he's just like an ensemble member you know stellan skarsgård fiona shaw it's a really good cast and you know and i also love how like the guy who looks to be the main antagonist just kind of like drops off. I don't know. Does he drop off the face? Does that, does the cop is sort of inspector job Does that guy come back or is he just, is he done? He, he hasn't come back. Well, he, he came back a little bit where he, he has to go uh, stay with his mom. Yeah. Which is a really demoralizing scene. And I think that really sets up, you know, where his character is going to go. We get the feeling that he's still, you know, he's not done with Cassie and Andor that he might take things into his own hands uh, because of, you know, how Andor kind of handed him, you know, handed his ass to him, so to speak, and, and really screwed up his whole career, which he had been, you know, social climbing and, and, you know, really, you know, hoping to be this, you know, bureaucratic, you know, inspector character. And it's kind of a nice uh, narrative bait and switch, a little faint, you know, and, and I feel like Andor, to some extent, I don't think it's as good as, say, House of the Dragon, which we talked about earlier in the show, uh, but, you know, it's a... It, the characters and their motivations are often surprising and what happens to them is not entirely predictable. And I appreciate that, but, but not entirely predictable, but it still makes sense. And I appreciate that in a narrative, you know, where, where you're not, you're not following necessarily established rules to, you know, as to who's going to win and who's going to lose. And that was, what was so affecting about Rogue One, which is the show that uh, Andor is a direct prequel to, is that all the characters died. All the main yeah. characters died in the end. And that was, you know, that was, it was shocking and amazing because, you know, we don't, we hadn't seen any of those characters for the most part in any other Star Wars film. So the big question when you went to go see Rogue One is, you know, what's going to happen to these people? Are they going to go into exile or, you know, why, you know, why do they disappear? And, uh, you know, when the filmmakers were talking about it, they talked to the producers and they're like, you know, they told them what they wanted to do. It's like, I think, you know, what we really want to do is just, you know, kill everybody. And the producers were like, well, do it. You know, it's the only way that this makes sense. And that was a bold move. It was a brave move. And it really, really pays off. And I think those sorts of gambles are the ones that they continue to take on Andor as a series. And another thing we have to realize is that, you know, Andor has already been greenlit for season two. So, you know, we have to think, you know, two seasons in advance instead of just, okay, this is just another, you know, kind of one-off special thing. Like, no, we're going to have another season to really, you know, flesh out more of these characters and let some of these simmering narratives come to more of a boil. So that's something to keep in mind. And I think something that uh, they're keeping on the down low right now, but when it comes to it, when it comes to season two, I think all of these relationships and a lot of these characters uh, and a lot of the work that they're putting in now is really going to pay off later. And it's already paying off so far in the sixth episode with the big heist was just so satisfying. I don't uh, think, really, really I don't think they're going to break the fourth wall, though. I don't think probably not. Like, and or <laughs> turning to the screen and being like, oh, my God, can you believe that just happened? <laughs> I don't think so. It would it'd be a little out of character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that would uh, 
That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. I just broke it would the, be I, funny, but I think I just broke the fourth wall of this podcast. Oh my gosh. Are we on a podcast? Oh my god, we're on a podcast. We're podcasting right now, Scott. Oh. Can you believe it? I'm I'm freaking out a little bit, Neil. I'm, I'm starting to get the fear. I just want to find love. <laughs> All right, Scott Gold, thank you so much. Andor and She-Hulk, available on Disney Plus for as long as we both shall live. I think that people need to realize that werewolves are real and they actually exist and they're extremely scary and I find them quite frightening. I find movies and TV shows about werewolves, even Twilight, I found a bit scary, um, even though it was stupid because it had werewolves in it. Uh, it is one of my greatest fears and uh, now there is a Disney uh, plus uh, Marvel show about a werewolf, which is extremely challenging for me because I'm somewhat of a Marvel Cinematic Universe completist. And uh, I have watched it. I watched it. I, I, I put my courage to the sticking place and watched Werewolf by Night. Pablo Gallaga didn't have as, as many problems with it as I did. Uh, and he saw it at Fantastic Fest here in Austin, and he's here with me today to talk about Marvel's Werewolf by Night. Hello. Hey, Neil. How's it going? I'm fine. I, even though I watched Werewolf by Night, which actually was pretty good. I mean, it's it's not it's not a quality thing. It's it's a it's a personal personal phobia that uh, I am I'm trying to work through. I, I should probably talk to my therapist about my. Uh, I I just want to agree. Werewolves are real. You're talking to somebody from the real Grand Valley. All those things are real to me. Vampires are real. El Chupacabra is real. It's all real. Yeah, they're real. I mean, they're there. Especially there's lots of room for them to roam in the Rio Rio Grande Valley. So so you know. You know, you, you grew up with monsters. Um, and, uh, I, you know, and I'm also like a kind of a hairy guy in general. So the whole concept of a werewolf just isn't, isn't that foreign to me in the way that certain other monsters would be. So, all right. So let's talk about Werewolf by Night. This is a special, a Marvel special, meaning it's like a, it's like, an, like a half a movie, like 50 minutes long. And it's essentially a, Werewolf by Night is a Marvel, canonical Marvel character from the 70s. Um, and he was basically a good guy werewolf for the most part who fought bad guys uh he's one of these sort of legion of monsters that marvel has created and he now comes to the screen in the form of gael garcia bernal he's a, a latino <laughs> a mexican werewolf i guess um, yeah nice to see i am also a, a hirsute mexican-american so that is nice right so it's like he's like your avatar uh, on screen for the mcu <laughs> uh, so hey i'll uh, take it yeah, I don't think there. I don't think there's. Are there any Jews in the Marvel universe? I'm trying to think. Probably uh, there must be. There must probably. be a Jew. But there must be a, a Jewish character somewhere. I mean, most of the shows do, do, do take place in New York. Uh, anyway, but this does not. This takes place in some um, I don't know, unnamed. It's a basically an homage to uh, classic Universal horror films: uh, The Wolfman, Dracula, Frankenstein. It's, most of it's in black and white. Um, and the, the, the concept is, is that there's some guy who's a monster hunter who has died. His name is Ulysses Bloodstone. And he has a special amulet called the Bloodstone. Uh, I guess. What are the chances, right? Right. I know. It's like, it's like, yes, my son will inherit the Pollock, uh, when I, when I pass. 
Um, and uh, a bunch of monster hunters gather at his mansion to, I don't know, hunt a monster to see who is the chief monster hunter who can wield the bloodstone. Is that, is that the premise? Yeah, that's definitely the premise. Um, in addition to that, you get Jack Russell, also a funny name, uh, basically getting an invitation to the funeral of Ulysses Bloodstone under the false pretense that he is also a monster hunter with over 100 kills. But he's actually a monster. Or he's a werewolf. He's the werewolf. Um, and he has sort of a, a meet cute with Ulysses Bloodstone's daughter, Elsa, who is very uh, sexy and athletic female monster hunter um, and uh, with a British accent, even though Ulysses Bloodstone does not have a Br British accent. Maybe she's been training in England or something. I don't know. But the thing about the thing that I like, I mean, look, it's fine. I mean, it's like a nice homage. The black and white is kind of fun and creepy. The, the maze they travel around and kind of. It's reminiscent of The Shining in some ways. You know, it's like a garden maze sort of thing. Um, clearly done on a, on a budget. Um, the thing that was the best about Werewolf by Night, I thought, was the introduction uh, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Man-Thing. Right? A lot of Man-Thing. Yeah, that is, that is going to be the big takeaway from here. I think a lot of fans have been waiting to see how the MCU approaches that live-action take of him. He's just a fan favorite character. He's going to be a lot of fun. I, I can see him totally getting his own series or possibly uh, you know, a major role in a future film. He's sort of um, the Marvel version of Swamp Thing, basically. Like he's a, a man who falls into a swamp while carrying some uh, of Captain America's super soldier serum and a chemical reaction turns him into a, a giant electric swamp monster. Um, is that about right? Yeah, definitely. And there's... Obviously, that uh, confusion between the two characters, Swamp Thing being DC, Man-Thing being Marvel. Right. Uh, but, the, I mean, they're, they're very similar. And, you know, but the, I thought the creature design on Man-Thing was really good. You know, he has all this, these barnacles growing out of him, and he's got these sort of long, long proboscis. And, you know, he, he gets actually, like, for someone who was not even remotely teased in the previews, he gets a surprising amount of screen time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, the reveal is is a surprise uh, and a nice sort of bit of fan service there. Uh, I agree about the design. I think he looks great, and it's nice to see kind of these sort of eldritch things make their way into the MCU because uh, he does kind of look like Cthulhu a little bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, he's he's in it quite a bit. But it's not really. I mean, he's not presented as, as scary. You know, he sort of has this buddy relationship with the werewolf. It's almost presented what was teased as a horror movie. I mean, there are there are some there's some gore, there's some werewolf action and stuff, but it's really more of a, it's not, it's Marvel, right? So it veers comedic a little bit, especially with the man thing stuff, and um, yeah, yeah, he's he plays out kind of like Groot. He's a little friendly, nonverbal, like yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I, I was a little surprised because they they it's advertised as classic horror. But I think at the end of the day, your main takeaway, even though there are there, there's some decapitations and some gory kills, uh, it's still Marvel. You know, this isn't actual horror. This isn't the horror that we talk about pretty regularly on this show. Right. It still has to come back to the center of what the MCU does. Yeah. It's like friendly monsters. Friendly monsters. Friendly <laughs> monsters being friendly with each other. Friendly monsters you'd want to hang out with. Right, and it's like it's like there's gonna be like some sort of monster team. They'll do the monster match. Monster squad. Monster <laughs> squad. Monster squad. That's right. That's right. There's That's a pretty... werewolf. 
Oh yeah, that was, that was like one of the the less threatening werewolves in werewolf history. I would say the mon- the monster squad with, with the the nards, the nards that can be kicked. Yeah. Yeah, or you know, it's like Teen Wolf, Michael Lamb, Landon's Teen <laughs> Werewolf. Like that's the level of werewolf I can handle. Oh, you can handle that. That's good. That's that's a start. I can handle. I can handle Mike, the Michael J. Fox Teen Wolf. Yes. So Werewolf by Night is the new Teen Wolf, I guess. And it's and it's it's uh, for Halloween and pretty much for every Halloween from here on in, it's going to be airing on Disney Plus. Yeah. I- that might happen. It could be an ongoing thing. Uh, I could see that replaying every Halloween. Yeah, good call. It's just a yearly werewolf special. It's good. It's good for me. It was good for me to face my fears. That's all I'm saying. I'm proud of you. All right, thanks, Pablo. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. All right, thanks, Pablo. Remember, as Halloween approaches, werewolves are real and they're very scary. Do not go out walking by yourself during the full moon not want to get attacked by a werewolf. I don't speak from experience because I've been very careful my entire life. I'm Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks to my contributors, Pablo Gallaga, Scott Gold, and Greg Ford for talking to me about all the hot shows that are currently airing on your television or whatever device you watch them on. I don't actually care where you watch things, as long as you watch things. So I don't feel so lonely watching things myself. It's all we do. We watch. I watch. I'm the watcher. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Pollock. We'll talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to the Bookhouse Milburn, M-I-L-L-B-U-R-N.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers. Or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts, thebookhousemilburn.com.